Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. For anyone operating in cyberspace, and today that's more or less everyone, cybercrime is a threat. Despite improvements in IT security, criminal groups continue to probe defences, exploit weaknesses and attack systems in cyberspace. Ransomware may now be the most visible face of cybercrime, but it's not the only threat. Theft of intellectual property, the dark web and conventional crime making more use of cyberspace are all risks. Just like legitimate businesses, the criminal world is going digital. Our guest today is security expert, chief scientist at Rapid7 and Europol EC3 advisor Raj Samani. He argues that for too long, cybercrime has been seen as an IT problem, but it goes much further than that. I don't think it's an area that we've quite cracked yet. And, and, and look, what I mean by that is, you know, historically, digital related crime was seen as an IT problem. And over the past few years, what we've seen is the consequences of an attack being born out outside of the digital realm. And, you know, I think when we spoke, obviously, we talked about no more ransom. And I think ransomware is a great example where if you think about the, the WannaCry attacks that resulted in an impact on patient care, what we see and what we witness today is, I think, there is at least some degree of tacit acknowledgement that a digital-related disruption can have economic or economic consequences on a commercial organization's ability to be able to generate revenue. And now that organizations are beginning to recognize and acknowledge that, therefore, cybersecurity is now becoming at, at least more of a regular topic at the board level, whether it's actually part of the business, as it were, or it's still seen as somewhat of an outsider, I think, you know, remains to be seen. I think there are some organizations where there is at least more of a integration of cyber cyber or infosec into the business, but it's, it's still absolutely not there yet, for example. Um, there were sort of SEC recommendations whereby you know, there would need to be a board member that would have a cyber background or knowledge or experience, which obviously is not going to be the case. But that's the direction we seem to be going towards where it's not, hey, it's not part of IT, but actually it's part of the business. And I hope that's one of the things that we'll begin to kind of unpack on this on this particular discussion. What are we seeing, though, in terms of the overall approaches of criminal groups to cyberspace? Because there's a constant shift and discussion about whether there's a shift between physical crime and online crime. And in fact, some online crime can have physical consequences. At the same time as we're seeing businesses digitizing more of their processes, that attack surface increases. That creates a problem for IT and it creates a problem for CISOs, but it also creates an opportunity, if that's the right way of putting it, for criminals who can find those gaps. So are we seeing an increase in criminality overall, or are we seeing perhaps a shift of criminality from the physical to the virtual? Well, I think the evolution of crime is something that was acknowledged um, well over a decade ago. So, 
in 2013, I wrote the paper Cybercrime Exposed, and I, I actually asked Charles Orting, who was heading up EC3, to write the foreword. But one of the, and I can't seem to find the reference anymore, which is really infuriating, but one of the references that I saw was, I think there was a statistic by the FBI which acknowledged that there were less physical bank robberies and an increase in digital crime. And that, I think, is at least some degree of acknowledgement that, that there is, at the very least, an increase in the evolution of crime towards a more digital perspective. And actually... You know, there was a similar there was a similar um, uh, write up by DOD, and I think on 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 a Southeast Asian country who are migrating from offensive physical warfare to more digital offensive warfare, and so the evolution of offensive capabilities, both for criminal or nation for, from from nation states to digital, is something that's happening. And I think, like you know, the opportunities around non repudiation. Or just the cost effectiveness, obviously, is one of the one of the things that's driving that. But uh, so so the evolution of crime has, has been happening for you know for, for 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 well over a decade. But to your point, well, what's changed more recently? Has has the volume increased? You know that is debatable. Um, you know, I, I think post kind of COVID, obviously, we saw. An, an, an enormous increase in the number of digitally related attacks and some of those really low level. But over the last year, what we've seen is ignore the volume. Cause I think, you know, in most cases, the volume is, is a, a bit of a red herring because it almost doesn't matter. You know, like we don't necessarily care, care about the number of ping sweeps against, a, you know, against our external attack service or our perimeter, because quite frankly, we block it anyway. We, we don't necessarily care about the number of known known based attacks because actually, you know, signature based detection technology has been in existence for over like three, four decades. What, what is concerning though, is the rapid evolution in which we're seeing the capabilities of threat actors. And this past year, we've seen what what we call um, internally the process of emergent threat response. So these critical vulnerabilities or these critical campaigns, which are being exploited in the wild, were previously unknown and being weaponized at a at a at a significant scale. And the example could be something like Move IT. Well, when we go back to a few years, you know, if you think of the likes of the Heartbleed and the Log for Js, these types of incidents were maybe once, maybe twice a year perhaps and i think it was like week before last we had three of these in a week and so my question has, has been so far well why are we seeing previously um let's call them less than capable individuals or groups who used to do things like buy credentials from rdp shops to to log into your rdp service to drop ransomware how on earth are they getting these non-trivial vulnerabilities that were previously unidentified? Like they're burning zero days at a rate and a scale that I, I, I honestly, I didn't anticipate myself. And so are they getting help or have they got better? And I think that's, that's one of the concerns. Well, that's certainly over this year. That's one of the biggest impacts and drivers that I've seen. And, and, and certainly many of us have seen as well is, you know, like this, this, this recent Apache issue was being exploited by the Hello Kitty ransomware group. And I mean, like, you wouldn't have thought that or clob with the move it vulnerability like that's a that's you know that's a that's a 
previously unidentified vulnerability and it's non-trivial in nature to identify well how on earth did they find that you know and i think those are the questions that 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 are kind of surfacing as we kind of close out the year so it's the rapidity of it the narrowing of the gap between discovery of the zero day or of the exploit and that actually being found in the field it's a question like when you had people whose initial entry vectors were you know hello one two three passwords and now the exploitation of vulnerabilities in file transfer software for example you think how on earth did you get that far that quickly so they've evolved or they got help or they got help so does that tie in then to potentially the geopolitical situation because we we started off talking about crime but we've already indicated that nation states and crime groups are at very least operating in the same space like a lot of what i'm about to say is conjecture because we we just simply don't know what we do know though is that there is a fluidity in amongst the you know skills for hire and and part of that was kind of touched upon the paper i wrote over a decade ago in which we saw criminals available for hire um and you know that kind of evolved in 2016 when we had the likes of the the, the Sam Sam groups and the Gantcrack groups and then the Soda Nakibis and Reevil ransomware as a service groups and the introduction of these affiliates that effectively came in and were, were for want of a better word kind of guns for hire and for a share of the profits would break into organisations. You know it stands to reason that there are individuals with technical skills available who would make themselves available for the highest bidder and ergo the motivation it almost becomes irrelevant i guess so yes i i assume that that the fluidity of the market kind of blurs this line and funny enough i'm doing a talk this afternoon talking about attribution and you know if you remember like over you know, 5 to 10 years ago we used to talk about you know, there are four different distinct types of groups of criminals. There are the the script kiddies, the nation states, the criminals, and the level of sophistication is X based upon the group they're in. And I think that that historic thinking now has to be kind of eliminated because the accessibility of skills for hire can dramatically increase the capability of a specific threat group, as we've seen this year, I think is a great example of that. And, you know, for me, this is this is one of those inflection points this year, more so than anything ever before. And I think 2016 was the last time in which we went, wow, okay, there's a lot that's changed. And I think 2023 is, you know, a yet another kind of transition and a change. Now, individual actors could move between those groups quite dynamically and depending on who has the biggest budget and the biggest requirement for their skills. If we go on to what the exploits are trying to do, though, is it still, in your view, majority focused on ransomware because of the easy way to cash out those attacks? Or are we seeing more complex and potentially more sophisticated attempts to disrupt enterprises? That's the fundamental question we have to ask ourselves, which is, it seems obvious to say ransomware because it's the most recognizable, it's the easiest to see. I mean, there was a great, there was, um, we did an incident, um, uh, we, Myself and the team, we we looked at a, an intrusion into an organization. And, you know, it turned out that the threat actor had been inside the network for seven years. Now, 
that's a really good example of well, with ransomware, you can see it. It's obvious. You know, either your computer systems are locked out or, you know, you somebody lets you know and says, hey, by the way, there's a bunch of data about your company on a on a, on a leak site. And you're like, okay, yeah, we've been hit by ransomware. Whereas if you think about things like, you know, espionage-related attacks, well, the whole objective of those is to remain hidden. And so it might seem like there's an increase or like a disproportionate number of ransomware attacks compared to espionage-related attacks. But it's only because they're the ones that are obvious to be seen. With the espionage-related ones, they're not. And this kind of kind of begs the question, which is, if this is the world that we live in today, then our approach to cybersecurity as an industry, therefore, has to evolve and adapt as well, which is why we're hearing and seeing the advent of threat hunting being such an integral component of businesses today, whereas, you know, six, seven years ago, I don't think anyone was talking about this. And so that's the the, the, the scope of things to come. So I think we've got to be careful not to draw conclusions from things that are glaringly obvious because the whole purpose of cyber-related crime for a large swathe of these attacks is to remain as obfuscated and as hidden as long as possible. And to what extent is the growth of the dark web causing an issue here? Because there is this unpoliced, largely invisible layer. And I think if if we were to speak to a lot of company boards, you know, CIOs might have an inkling about it. CISOs probably have some working knowledge, but the majority of business leaders probably are quite unaware of how much is actually out there unless as you've already said it happens that somebody gets hold of their data and that's how they find out about it that's a great question i, I don't know is the answer you know is, is there a statistic or a number i mean one thing i am fairly confident of is if there was no dark web or somebody said, oh, what about cryptocurrency? Isn't that the fuel that's driving ransomware? It's like, yeah. I mean, you know, certainly the majority of ransomware attacks are using kind of crypto payment mechanisms. The, the one thing I do know for sure is that criminals are, are innovative and they will find whatever means and mechanism they need in order to extort payment or you know, host stolen data. And so if it wasn't the dark web, it would be a another, like, you know, bulletproof hosting, for example, was was a major issue for us for a long time. I suspect if the getaway vehicle wasn't a car, they'd find another vehicle to basically flee from the scene of a crime. Yeah, they could use bags of cash if they had to. Well, and, and we've seen that. We've seen, you know, money laundering using kind of consumable tech as a vehicle to launder money. And so... That's that's the I was going to say that's the tremendous thing about crime, but that that's the tremendous thing about the human spirit. It will innovate um, as needs demand, and so criminals are no different to to you know businesses today looking to innovate to try to find a way ahead of their competitors. Likewise, criminals will do what they can to innovate to stay one step ahead of the cybersecurity industry. And are we seeing with? the issues that are happening in the economy, perhaps more people trying their hands at crime. So we talked about the different types of groups, but potentially either people going in as independent freelance criminal agents trying to raise some funds for themselves, it might be quite low level, or indeed legitimate trained security people who have fallen on hard times and 
try their hands with a criminal group. Is there any uh, credence to that argument? If you look at the outcomes of you know, law enforcement actions against kind of criminal or dark web marketplaces, there, and, and just look at the number of arrests, there is no doubt in my mind that there are the pathways into cybercrime have become easier, easier to access, more accessible, and potentially more rewarding. But we don't know the motivation behind that. And I think that's the challenge we face in, you know, like in the ivory tower that I sit in, I can tell you, oh yeah, okay, we're seeing attacks coming. Um uh, for example, we're seeing the exploitation of this particular vulnerability. Okay, we believe the exploitation of this vulnerability to be to be behind this threat group. Well, okay, but I can't do things like absolute attribution. You know, I can't sit in front of somebody and say, okay, well, why were you doing this? And you know, is this this nation at one hundred percent? Which is why things like attribution become difficult using solely technical indicators. Likewise, the motivation behind it. I can tell you, yes. Actually, the disruption of this dark web marketplace uh, resulted in X number of arrests. But what I can't tell you is the individuals behind that, what was the root cause of it? Now, you know, I've done a a multitude of interventions, I guess, you know, working with law enforcement, interviewing individuals, trying to work on this kind of prevent strategy, getting young kids to, you know, who've carried out misdemeanors to not you know, be like have face jail time. You know, we, we invested in the likes of Bletchley Park when, when we were still at McAfee. You know, we took young kids through that. And and what I would tell you is, is having spoken to individuals that carry out such crimes, invariably it's not like a case of, well, um, I didn't have any money because I couldn't afford it, so I thought I'd go into cybercrime. It was, I didn't know what I was doing was wrong. I didn't realize that this was bad or hey all i wanted to do was throw my friend off this particular game because in order for me so there wasn't this kind of cold calculated thing like okay i'm 100 pounds short this month so let me go out and get some stolen credit cards and do that i don't think it was certainly the people i've spoken to there may well be but again like my purview is limited in that you know i see technical indicators and i don't know the motivations behind that So it's a more complicated set of drivers. That then makes it harder for both law enforcement and indeed individual organisations to deal with this. So first off, what is being done in the public space? What's being done by law enforcement agencies and others to try to at least contain the growth of cybercrime? Well, if you go back to... I think it was before 2016, but like, you know, when 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 Europol came up, we had JCAP, which is the Joint Cybercrime Action Task Force, and I think one of the first investigations they did was B-Bone, which is a malicious downloader. That obviously was something that I was involved with, and since then we've seen the disruption of and the dismantling of multitudes of ransomware groups. We've seen the growth of No More Ransom as a as a portal to provide free decryption keys, which has resulted in over a billion dollars not going into the hands of criminals. We've seen the disruption of dark web marketplaces. And also we're seeing a a more sensible approach as it comes to trying to deviate criminals or, or, sorry, young individuals that have carried out, for example, low-level or misdemeanor crimes to not have their entire lives ruined. So, you know, the, the NCA's prevent strategy, we've seen the same in the Netherlands, we've seen the same in the US. 
what's what's encouraging now is is that there is a more of a sensible approach towards things which or, or, or towards punishment and and that's important because you know it's, it's ironic we talk about this 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 challenge where um we've got a skill shortage and yet you know, then the other side of it, we're going, okay, well, if you've done anything like this, then, you know, you'll face criminal action and you'll, you know, potentially disrupt your ability to get a job in the industry. So I think there's a lot that's going on in, in, in the public space. I think in the private sector space, I think there's more of a nuanced approach towards how we address cybersecurity. And I think that's being driven and fueled by, this 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 market this this landscape this threat landscape which is considerably more um, demanding than anything we've ever experienced and so things such as okay well here's a critical vulnerability what's the prevalence what's the exploitation of that what's the context behind it you know the the, the growth of threat hunting the accessibility of DFIR tools I think I talked about Velociraptor earlier. Um, you know, for example, within our own team, you know, I'm, I'm, my organization is now publishing threat hunting rules, free of charge, open, free to the community. So there is more contextualized analysis that's being made available to organizations to help them prioritize on what needs to be done and how and when. Because, like you said, for for many organizations, the first time you realize you've been impacted in a breach is when somebody calls you and says, oh, by the way, you know, we found all of your all of your data published on a leak site. Well, that cannot be the early warning system or the warning system for organizations today. There has to be a more contextualized, nuanced approach towards cybersecurity. And how important is it to improve collaboration between public and private sectors? There is always a bit of a a reluctance from businesses to invest in these things. They see it as an insurance policy. At the same time, we're in a slightly unusual area in cybercrime where, you know, if you suffer a breach, you have to disclose the breach. You may even be fined as a result of the breach. You're not fined if someone burgles your house. So there is a little bit of a disconnect there. And I can understand why some boards say, actually, why do we have to do the government's work for them? Why isn't law enforcement or indeed intelligence agencies providing that protection? That's a can of work. Like that, we're opening up the Pandora's box there because, yes, there are organizations that will be fined. If you are a data subject and you suffer material harm from the fact that an organization entrusted with the preservation and protection of your personal data had a password of welcome123 and didn't detect the threat for nine months, then, like, is, is a fine such a, you know, terrible punishment or actually would you be considering well actually maybe there's more here right so there is there is this question and i think you know it's enshrined in the data protection act under principle seven of the dpa which talks about appropriate organizational and technical controls and you you know you can argue it's it is the same as okay when your house is burgled because yes there is a fine and so so if your house gets burgled and you left the back door open or you left the windows open there is every chance that the insurance company will not pay out it's like it happened to a friend of mine whose car was stolen you know he left his car doors unlocked and left the keys in the car in the, in the ignition well ergo he didn't get his insurance paid out so that is in a sense a fine being provided by the marketplace the the the, the consequences i guess here 
is that you have a duty of care for the data subjects that you are, whose data you have. And so therefore, from the ICO's perspective or the, or the data protection authorities, therefore you do have a duty of care to provide the appropriate level of controls. And it's that nuance, I think, and, and, and I guess you'd call it due diligence, but that, that nuance, which I think is not being acknowledged by our industry. So in other words, if an organization suffers a breach, typically they would have some degree of abnormal churn rate. What we're not doing as an industry is saying, well, hang on, there's nothing that you could have done here. And therefore the impact and the consequence to you as a market, or the market kind of impact on you should be less than say, for example, a company that had, you know, insecure API access with, with <laughs> or whatever, right? If, it, if they didn't do the due diligence, then therefore there should be high penalties. And so I think, from a regulatory perspective, they do that, but from a market perspective, we don't we don't we don't differentiate between companies that have done the right thing and just were unfortunate or didn't do the right thing and you know and just the you know the news kind of didn't go viral, for example. Yeah, so sometimes they get lucky, but at the same time, what you're talking about is effectively contributory negligence where a business may not have taken the steps that anybody would consider reasonable to protect the data they've been entrusted with. So when I was a CSO, I used to call it the Daily Mail test. You know, if we suffer a breach, would, when the newspapers get a hold of it, turn around and say, well, yeah, clearly you should have done better. And and that was always the kind of yardstick I used to tell the team, which is, look, you know, it, it, it's like the solar winds attack, right? A solar winds attack is a great case in point. In that particular instance, we as an industry always talk about and say, well, look, you need to patch your systems quicker. It's an acknowledged approach. But in the SolarWinds example, hey, if you'd have applied the patches straight away and then not reviewed the source code for the updates, then you're introducing vulnerabilities into your environment. Well, look, that's a level of risk that we ultimately have to accept in that particular instance. If you are the sort of organization that sits down and reviews all of the updates line by line, well, guess what? 99% of these vulnerabilities will be released. You're not going to be quickly enough, and then therefore your systems will remain unpatched. And so there is a degree of risk acceptance, and I hate that term. I hate that approach, but there is a level of risk acceptance in which you have to say, okay, well, look, clearly if we just apply the update straight away, there is a risk that we'll have that solar winds issue come and like bite us, but it's a level of risk we have to tolerate because if we don't patch quickly enough, the other 10,000 vulnerabilities that we have could are probably being exploited in the wild. So there is this kind of balancing act that I think we have to take. It is. And also law enforcement has a finite capability. There's finite resources. They have other demands on their time. So to some extent, collaboration between the two has to be the way forward, doesn't it? Because there isn't you know, the budget to employ another 1,000, 10,000 specialist police officers to investigate this stuff even if such people were even available on the market, which they're probably not. Well, I'm going to sound controversial here, but I don't I, I don't think our historic approach towards tackling and dealing with crime necessarily translate themselves into the digital world. Because, And, and that's why organizations such as Europol or Interpol or actually, you know, the, the, the JCATs of this world become so important. In, in a physical crime, the the... The crime is is typically kind of contained within the borders of that particular country. So, for example, someone breaks into the house, 
there's every chance that person was in the or not every chance that person was in that country in order to carry out the crime. Well, in this particular instance with digital, number one, it's a it's unlikely or it may not be absolute, but the criminal may not be in that say it may not be in that country, and also the likelihood is is that you're not the only person that was impacted by this. It would be other individuals across the globe, and so being being able to coordinate kind of a global kind of response to this. And then identifying the investigating authority for that particular case becomes important. So, you know, if there is a ransomware attack on a UK business, every chance has been in the same ransomware attack in France, Netherlands, Germany, blah, 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 blah. So actually, rather than having the UK and the Germans and everyone doing their own investigation, actually we have a single investigation led by one particular authority working with private sector. That then becomes a better use of time. So I think that's why you know, the likes of EC3, the likes of Interpol, like the other agencies across the world collaborating with private sector, I think becomes really key. And that's where the private sector should be working closely with, with law enforcement. Raj Samani on how conventional approaches to tackling crime do not always work well in cyberspace and how that means that law enforcement, governments and businesses all have a part to play in countering the threat. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we'll review some of the key developments in cyberspace during 2023 and look forward to 2024. That'll go live on Thursday, the 28th of December. Until then, do catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.